Welcome to the Dietitian's Dish Podcast. We are Gina and Nicole, two dietitian mamas and good friends living in Ohio and Michigan. This is a podcast dedicated to making whole family wellness more fun and less stressful. Whether you're listening in the car or slumped on the couch with a glass of wine, welcome. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining. I'm Nicole. And I'm Gina. And today we are dishing up our second episode in our self-care series today, just being on our most basic needs. Uh, And I guess, go ahead, Gina. I'm going ahead with the reminder. Yes. Okay. (laughs) It feels weird not to catch up on these these quicker self-care episodes. So yeah. I agree. I agree. It's not the same flow. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So before we begin, just a quick favor to ask. If you like this podcast, please write us a review. Reviews on iTunes are everything to us and they really help us reach more people. So of course, we'd always appreciate it very much. Awesome. So as we said in the intro, today's show is uh, a part of our self-care series. So once a month, we'll focus on a new area of self-care. We know for all of us, life gets overwhelming and that sense of getting lost in the sea of to-dos and worry, anxiety seems inevitable. And self-care can be described as simply the active process of making your body and mind a pleasant place to inhabit by filling your own cup first, which ensures you have enough to give others. And we'll keep reminding you of that. And this is self-care being a huge topic, lots to unpack. So we're doing it a topic at a time. And today on self-care and our most basic needs. So what would you say are our most basic needs? I defined it at least um, as the things that we perhaps go day to day, not giving much thought or consideration to, uh, and yet vital to our our health and well being. Uh, so things like, uh, and I don't know if there, you have any to add or or, or maybe subtracting it, but I came up with our living and working space, hydration, nutrition, sleep physical touch, and mental health. Oh, and also social interactions. Anything to add or subtract there? No, I I, I hadn't really thought about living and working space, but I like it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I was thinking of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs and like shelter and safety being, I don't mm-hmm. know. No, okay. I like that. I'm getting all nerdy. All right. <laughs> so starting with our physical uh, spaces where we live and work is probably where we spend the bulk of our time. Describe... Mm-hmm your your space, uh, whether it's at home or work or both? And what could you do, if anything, to make your sp- space more enjoyable or promoting of self-care? <laughs> mm, yes. I just really love light and natural light, as I'm sure most people do. I just love, I think one of the reasons why we bought this house, it's this very small house, but what caught my eye when we first walked in was the kitchen slash dining area. It has this giant window that goes all the way to the top of the ceiling. And it's just, it brings in so much light. And honestly, I don't think that I would have even been really interested in the house. If, if, if I think that window, I am not even kidding, sold me on this house. I just love a place where I can sit either outside and be in natural light because I'm outside, obviously, or anywhere in, in my house or my office where I can just be near a window and have access to outside light. I have in my office, I'm, it's almost like a dungeon, but I'm very thankful that I do have one small window. It is not very big. It is probably two feet by three feet, but Hey, it, it does the trick. I, you know, I actually, there was about a year where they had to cover the window because they were doing construction. I think that it actually really did affect my mental health. It was just, I don't know. I need that, that outside, that light. There's a reason why they have those wet light uh, lamps mm-hmm. uh, for people for for mental health. I think what's it called? Sad seasonal yep. affective disorder. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think there's really a lot to that. But yes, I think in in my house, really my favorite room is the one with the giant window. But really, any space where I can sit, put a nice drink of some sort down, and have access to to natural light. Mm. Yeah. You saying that in my workspace, I sometimes I'll put it on Instagram. It's generally a hot mess and people know that about me. Uh, but something you just said made me think of two things that I could do to improve work in my workspace. Mm-hmm. One I've one I've done just recently, which was upgrade my office chair. My office chair was literally from like the 1960s. And being a short person, I've had an ergo assessment at work, which a lot of office spaces um and systems 
have those people. So maybe just ask, but got like a little foot lift and things like that. Cause I'm so short, my posture, it, it just, it's hard to find a workspace like height, all of that that works for me. My I'm generally like sitting on my feet and it's just not good. Um, so I upgraded my office chair and it was like $500 to our budget, which mm. I've budgeted for it. It's there, but I've just every year, I bet it's been in my budget for like three years and I haven't pulled the trigger, but I did. And I do like my new chair. I think the yeah. other thing is I need to put in a work order. I have, I am convinced I've been in the same office for like six years, but I am convinced that there are um, like motion kind of sensors on my lights because they dim Mm -hmm. after I've been in my office, not moving for a period of time. So a lot of times when I'm with a patient, I will be for upwards of an hour, maybe even longer. And it's like over the course of the appointment, (laughs) the the lights just like dim and dim and dim. And I do have two lamps in my office, but it's very bizarre. So sometimes I'll be like, you know, placing a continuous glucose monitor on somebody's belly or going to, you know, check their blood sugar. And I'm like, I can't even see like I'm not old. And it's like we're in a dark closet because I don't have a window. So I need to put in a work order for that. That's so random. Um, But it's not just me. Sometimes people will walk in my office and be like, it's weird. It's dark in here. Like, it, I don't know. Anyway, uh, at home, I would say we've done a lot to our home over time. But, you know, the kitchen, I would say, is good. But I need to little things like tackle the junk drawer, get rid of the pile of crap sitting on my kitchen counter. It's like tucked in a corner, right? Like it's so it seems a little, um, you know, okay. It's not. It, it kind of drives me nuts. Um, and I would just feel so much better if I could tackle those things. So making kind of a schedule for that. And then in our living room, um, just, I don't know, a way to just get the kids stuff more organized and just make it a more enjoyable place to be. Like yeah. not stepping on toys every time I want to go sit and watch TV. I don't know. Yeah. No, I would. I actually didn't even mention that, but you're so right. I'm very thankful that Nick agrees with me on this, but I hate clutter. Hate it. Uh, It actually does make me go a little bonkers. Uh, I I just, so we just had our house painted and everything had to come off the wall. Everything was pushed to the center. I know I talked about this, but it just, I was anxious for two weeks. Just, it just affected my mental health. It really, really did. Uh, so we are one of those families. We will completely declutter our house like twice a year and just constantly throughout the year. I hate clutter. So my office is very, very neat and tidy. Our house tends to be pretty neat and tidy too. Mm-hmm. When we hired a a cleaning uh, service, she pretty much said, you know, your house is one of the cleanest we've ever seen. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, we just don't like clutter. I We always get rid of stuff. In fact, my mom always says we get rid of stuff too easily, but hey, that's what we like. I need to be more like you, Gina. <laughs> but goals. I think the goals and I think getting on a schedule, like make it work it in, pencil it in literally on your calendar to do it mm-hmm. twice. Do something once a week, mm-hmm. twice a month, whatever it is. Um, goal for myself there. Okay. Number two, <laughs> on a scale of one to 10, one being poor, 10 being exceptional, what would you rank your hydration status and any tips uh, or tricks for improving the hydration status for others or kind of what helps you meet the self-care behavior? Yeah. All right. So I would give myself between an eight and a nine. Uh, and here's how I, this is just what I'm thinking. This is why I give myself that number is because I pee regularly and I don't really even know what regularly means, but I'm probably peeing every couple hours, two to three hours. Also, and I know this is way too much detail, but hey, this is how I, this is how I am figuring out how hydrated I am. My pee is not dark. It's usually very light. And also I don't feel thirsty often. You know how they say, if you actually notice that you're thirsty, it's probably too late. You haven't had enough fluids. Mm-hmm. I think that there is something to that. Um, not that if you get thirsty, you're doing poorly, but I think that that is kind of a good gauge for how well you're staying hydrated. I fill my water bottle quite a bit at work. Now it's not that, it's not that uh, large. I mean, I would say it's probably 12 ounces and I probably fill it four times. I'm not counting or anything. Um, also I don't drink a lot of caffeine or things that may act as a diuretic. So I think that that's helpful as well. So generally when I'm going to the bathroom, it's because of my, you know, just water or, uh, you know, flavored water or LaCroix intake. If I had a tip, I would say, if you don't like water, find something that you do like or add flavoring to your water. Uh, if I do get sick of water often and I feel like most people do, I have a one LaCroix every day, sometimes two, let's be honest. Um, just to kind of mix it up. Or 
often, especially in the summer, I'll add things like fresh lemon or lime or strawberries to my water just for an extra kick of flavor. So I'm not just drinking water. So I know I hear that from people a lot. I don't want to drink water. It's so boring. Well, find something that you like. It doesn't have to be water. Find other ways to make your water more satisfying. Mm-hmm. Uh, you do better at this than at me. I would rank myself like a five. Um, I would, yeah, it's just a struggle. I, I don't, this has always been a struggle for me, I would say, but I, I will say that a hydro flask, I have a 32 ounce hydro flask with the sports, um, what is it? Like the straw with the suck. I don't know. Then you can fold the little suck part down so you can throw it in a bag. You know, it can tumble around, right? Like without spilling. That was huge for me because I was kind of a, a Yeti um, tumbler person, but you can't just throw a Yeti in a bag. And for me, that was an important piece to being successful with that because I do not drink the water at work. It tastes gross. Um, and another little trick that I found recently is that if I, because I'm more of like a two to three a day LaCroix drinker, I've got a little habit, but I've noticed that even if I open it and put it like at my workstation, I will finish it because I like LaCroix super cold. I will finish it. Back. I will drink more ounces of fluid during the day if I do that versus just having my hydro flask there. To your point, it's something different. There's tons of different flavors. Like I, I will grab two to three different flavors every day as I'm walking out the door. I grab them from our fridge in the garage. Mm. Um, and that may be another trick is just to have it be visible or a part of your routine to pack as you go. Um mm-hmm. And I would definitely like some people I know that I work with will take in several cases to work and keep them under their desk or whatever, and then just throw them in the fridge a couple at a time at work so that they always have them on hand. Right. Um, So just try and uh, just create your environment that's going to be successful for you. The Hydro Flask is super expensive, but I will say it was just a good um, it was a gift, but it's been helpful for me. So I drink about it's not good, but I aim for 32 ounces at work plus 12 to tw- it's more really more like 24 ounces of sparkling water. And then when I work out, which is after work, I usually drink 24 ounces. Uh, but then after that, like between 6 and 10 p.m. And the 24 ounces when I work out is not enough. I sweat like a pig. Um, that is probably not enough. But then I kind of decrease my fluids because otherwise I'll be up peeing all night. So I think for right. me too, another trick is less coffee. I like double up on coffee in the morning, whereas if I just kept to one, I'd be thirstier earlier in the day. And I think as you alluded to, caffeine being a diuretic, it's kind of it it I don't count coffee towards my fluid intake. I don't know. Do you? Oh, I do. Oh, I you absolutely do. do. Yeah. Oh yeah. I think you should. It's fluid. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, unless you're just drinking coffee as your, you know, fluid intake. I mean, I would definitely say that's an issue, but if you're having one or two cups of coffee a day, I would definitely count that towards your, you know, quote unquote, eight cups of, of fluid a day. Okay. But my cup is 12 to 16 ounces and I probably don't touch water. Other, I maybe have one to two ounces of water before noon. That's not but good. What is coffee? It's water. <laughs> it's made with water. Yeah. I definitely count it. I, th- I do think that if you're drinking more than two cups of coffee a day, like you should probably- two fluid cups, like eight ounces. Yes. Two eight ounce servings of, of coffee. Correct. Mm-hmm. If you're drinking more than that, I would definitely say you probably need more than that, you know, average, quote unquote, eight cups a day. Um, but generally, again, I just say, as long as your pee is staying nice and light, you're probably doing fine. Uh, people, I think, think way too much about about their fluid intake. It is super important, but it's, it's. I'm just such a, I don't like getting too, too caught up in numbers or counting things in general. You know how I am like with calories and weighing and all that. So I just say, as long as your pee is relatively light, I think you're doing great. And I, I always say to count your coffee towards it. Again, as long as you're not, you know, drinking coffee all day, which is going to negatively affect your your fluids mm-hmm. for sure. Look uh, at the toilet I was going to say something. Oh, yeah, exactly. Always look at your pee. I look at my kids' pee too. Like, how are they doing as far as fluids? Oh, you guys need more water. Um. Oh, okay. So I was going to I was going to say this. I get this question a lot about, about carbonated drinks. You know, how, how much is too much LaCroix a day? Correct me if I'm wrong, and I hope I don't regret asking this question because I haven't researched this, Nicole, but I remember learning, and this is what I always say to people who ask this, the reason why they say carbonated beverages should be kept you know, to a minimum, and I'm going to say, I would say probably one to two a day, that's just my personal opinion, is because of the carbonation, and it could potentially negatively affect your bones because it kind of pulls calcium from your bones, Right. So I think of that as being a phosphorus thing. Okay, yeah. Which is in cola, like mm-hmm. s- s- 
flavored stuff, but okay. is so I don't think there is phosphorus in a LaCroix. See, but I think it has to do with the carbonation. I'm going to look it up and you go on to the next question. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'll ask the question. Do you want me to answer the next question then first? Sure. Yeah. Okay. I know as we get Googling, it can really sidetrack us. Okay. So, you know, Gina, obviously we have high regard for nutrition and its role in self-care. So if we were to give just a few tips or suggestions to those who struggle with proper nutrition, what would they be? Uh, and I, I asked this question because I think you and I feel pretty good and on top of this one. Uh, but for example, I know a lot of people struggle with time for meal preparation or limited budgets, the difficulty of feeding multiple people with various preferences or simply eating out less. And in response to that, I guess I would first say to make a, a menu plan based on the week. And when I say based on the week, look at what you have upcoming. Is there a work dinner? Is there baseball practice? Is there um, travel? You, you have to create a recipe for success here. Um, you know, I think some people go guns blazing and plan seven days in a row and then they don't account for life. And then there's groceries that are purchased and go to waste and blah, blah, blah. So plan accordingly and then practice the plan. Think about it the night before or the morning of. Is there something you need to defrost or prep or marinate? Um, if you kind of wait until you get home, it's it's not going to be successful. And then when you practice the plan over time, it will become a routine. So keep it simple. Maybe to start, just try adding nutrition in simple ways. You do what you're currently doing, but perhaps just try adding a frozen vegetable or reducing added saturated fats and salt, uh, butters, oils, things like that. And then keep records. And I know you're really good at this, Gina. Record what you like and what you don't like. I think you give like a grade to the meals that you try. Um, Sometimes I'll be looking back in my blog and I'll be like, oh my gosh, I remember that was such a hit with my family. Like we should totally make that again. Um, we joke we never have anything twice around here, but that's not true. All the more as time goes on, it's not true. Um, so I would definitely keep, a, just record, find a way to kind of keep your repertoire of well-loved stuff um, front and center so that you can easily access and go back to that. And then gain feedback and input from anyone that you're feeding and try and engage everyone in the process. So if you're trying to get your family on board with kind of just a, a more nutritious routine, um, ask them what they want and kind of go from there. And chances are you'll be able to adapt or make that happen based on what they say. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I do. I, it is very helpful for me right after I make a recipe, I will write a number, uh, you know, nine out of 10 or eight out of 10, and then I'll make a note of who liked it and who didn't. Mm -hmm. So if I make it again, I might have to just keep in mind that that child may need something else or that, I don't know, Nick might need to make something else for himself. Uh, so that have, is actually very helpful. I, I found that to be very helpful for me. And sometimes, and I don't assume they won't like it again. Like I will always offer it to, like if, if Paige didn't like a certain meal, I'll make a note, but I will, I'll still offer it to her if I make it a month later because sometimes they'll surprise me. And, uh, but yeah, I just, it's nice to, to kind of have a heads up if I make it again. All right. So as far as um, my thoughts on that, I think just as we're discussing today, all of this starts with taking care of your most basic needs. If those aren't being met, no one's going to have energy and foresight to do meal planning or budgeting, for example. So you have to think about the things that you need regularly, like what Nicole said at the beginning of this podcast, food, water, sleep, etc., um, And then take the next steps once you've established those and start to finesse. I really think it's important to take baby steps and don't create goals that are too far out of reach. You know, people who go from, you know, I never make anything I eat. I eat out every single day to thinking that they're going to start creating a recipe or a new, you know, thing uh, for their family every single day or even three times a week is it can be too hard yeah. for some people. And I am included in that. Um, for example, I think that meal preparation might look like this. I will start my planning, I will start by planning one recipe a week. That is a realistic goal. If you, if you really eat out all the time or rarely are preparing a meal and you really want to start to do better, start small and, and start with just, I'm going to plan one recipe a week. I'm going to make one dinner a week. Or I know some people who just hate to go to the grocery store uh, or just never have their refrigerator or pantry filled with any foods because they just don't like to go grocery shopping. I will schedule a time to go grocery shopping once a week, or I will start to place my order online once a week for delivery. Uh, that's what I started doing because I was one of those people who just, I found it 
so stressful to find time to go to the grocery store, which I never thought I would do, or I never thought I would be that person because I love going to the grocery store, but it just wasn't fitting into my schedule. I now, once a week on Fridays, place my my grocery order for either pickup or delivery, either Walmart or Giant Eagle. Once a week, I've got it on my calendar on Fridays and it gets done every single Friday. And then I generally schedule it for the next Wednesday. I've got that planned out. That with little baby steps is just what I think is is so, so important. And don't beat yourself up, you know? Come from a place of curiosity, not judgment. That's what they always say in the intuitive eating books. And I love that. If you're not doing great in the nutrition area, it's okay. Take baby steps. Don't beat yourself up. Um, you'll, you'll get there. Yeah, absolutely. All right. We know moving our bodies is essential to our overall health and wellness. And I would make a case that it's certainly a form of self-care. And I'm guessing you agree. Uh, that said, a lot of people who incorporate routine exercise like ourselves may struggle with dialing back and including recovery and cross-training. So taking this a little bit um, on a different spin. So how do you, Gina, ensure you're not overdoing it with activity? Oh, yeah. Okay. So I feel it all comes down to, again, bringing up intuitive eating here, interoceptive awareness, um, how I guess you would say one with your body, are you? I really think that your body will tell you when it's had enough. For example, I I have, you know, back issues. I, I'm not even 40 yet and my back is already hurting. I did a workout yesterday. My back started to hurt. So obviously I'm not working out today. I need to give it a little rest. If you're truly in a place where you don't have a healthy relationship with exercise, you may not notice those subtle messages that your body is giving you. You might try to push them aside or just ignore them. I know I have been there and I know I've talked about this a little bit on the podcast. It took me a while to realize that taking a day or two off or more if needed is actually helpful for your body and for your mental health, not harmful. My body was giving me messages that I know I didn't even register because I was so immersed in this idea that if I skipped a day of working out, my body would turn to mush. So sad. <laughs> I would say no to things. This is this is where I, I think my life was just sort of in, in turmoil. And I can remember this so vividly. I would say no to social events or uh, whatever it was just so I could get a workout in. So if I had a workout scheduled at nine and someone asked me to go get some coffee or whatever it was, I would, of course, say no because I have to get my workout in. Um, I'm all about scheduling my workouts now, but I've I've learned to not be rigid with it. And it really does take practice. I will say I was very, very rigid about, about my workouts. I went from having anorexia to I would almost call it bulimia because I my way of purging was exercise. So I didn't actually purge in the way that you might think of with someone who has bulimia nervosa, mm-hmm. I would get rid of my excess calories by exercising. And I was exercising all the time, regardless of what, the, of what types of signals my body was giving me. And I, and I know it was affecting my social life as well, but now I feel so much better. I'm in a much, much better place and I'm just so much happier. Um, but yes, movement is still so important, but making sure that you're doing the right types of movement for your body and a movement that is also somewhat enjoyable. And yes, that does exist. I used to laugh at that because deep down, I, I wasn't enjoying my workouts because my body was telling me it's it's had too much. But now I actually look forward to my working out and I never thought I would say that. Mm-hmm. Takes time. Yeah, I, I'm super competitive. And I, I've said this before, I'm very metrics driven um, with myself. I, that's one of the reasons I really enjoy the Peloton. And I've, I've been noticing people, and I, I was talking about this with, with some runners lately. Um, just recently, we had a conversation and we said, if you're doing an out and back, when you get to that halfway point, do you just turn around and keep running or, or do you kind of pause and walk? What would you do, Gina? Wait, what's an out and back? Like if you're just, say you're running three miles and you run yeah. down the road a mile and a half, you turn around and you, you come back. Would you yeah. just turn around and come back? Like you wouldn't stop to, like, would you pause to like, catch your breath for a minute, maybe grab a sip of water, or would you just turn around and run right back? If I'm doing three miles, turn around and run back. Okay. So me, okay. So you're doing five. Any difference? Okay. It might make a difference. I, I tend, to, I don't know. Honestly, here's my answer. It totally depends. I can sometimes go and run five miles without stopping once. All, and then, you know, last Sunday I ran three miles and stopped probably four times because it was hot and humid. It really depends on so, so many things. Yeah. 
So I can't give you an answer. I was I was talking to some friends of ours recently and they said they're very competitive runners, which I, I thought was interesting. And they said, oh yeah, we'll usually stop like halfway and, and like walk for a minute. I'm, I was like, I found that so interesting because mm-hmm. I think for me, I'm so competitive with myself that would never occur to me to stop halfway and like walk. Like I would just turn around. I don't know. But then yeah. like you just said, I had this run this week and it was hot as heck. It was so humid. <laughs> I struggled and it was yeah. like, I, I was so uncomfortable. And finally I'm like, why don't you walk, Nicole? Like you're so, yeah. well, this is so ridiculous. Like get out of your head. This is, like your exercise, like stop. This is ridiculous. I, I don't know. So I think for yeah. me that I, I'm just, I'm just trying to like reframe a lot of this because I'm not the 18 year old marathoner that I was, right? Like I'm literally twice that age, right? Have two children. Like there's so many factors that I think for me, like you said, movement has to bring joy. I think the other thing that I do like about the Apple Watch, while it can kind of keep me like hyper aware of what's going on, perhaps to the negative at times, I do also appreciate that things like stretching and yoga and walking all count towards activity. So I will say I've gotten a lot better at diversifying my workouts and then definitely taking at least one day off Um, and doing things like that are low impact. And yeah, just, I don't know, but that's a struggle for me. I will say I struggle to keep my workouts um, from always being like a hundred percent all the time. That's a challenge for me. And that's so important that you that you've brought that up, Nicole. And I guess I'm not competitive, and I'm I'm actually very thankful that I'm not because <laughs> I think I could easily get caught up in the numbers. And actually, I used to. I think I've mentioned this before on, on the podcast. I I used to be obsessed with closing my ring. So I guess in that way, I, I was competitive with myself, right? Yeah. Every day, I had to to get my rings all closed on my watch every single day, or I just got I'd be doing jumping jacks in my room. I mean, that's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I don't even look at my rings anymore, at least not until the end of the day. And then by then it doesn't, doesn't really matter. Right. And I just feel like I'm in such a better place now. Mm-hmm. So yeah, when I'm out running and I feel like I need to stop and walk, you better believe I'm going to do it. And I don't, I don't think anything of it. Same thing when I get back to my house and I look at my watch and I've only run uh, 3.79 miles instead of four miles. I used to just keep running until I got to that exact mm-hmm. four mile. It's so stupid. I'm done with my run. I feel good. It's time to stretch. You know, mm-hmm. it's just those little things. Don't yeah. beat yourself up. Don't overanalyze. Yeah. It's, we probably it's, it's sound hard, crazy but. to non-exercisers, but it, there <laughs> is exercise has two extremes. I would say not doing it is a form of not honoring your self-care, right? It's find a way to move your body that brings you joy. Yeah. But when mm-hmm. you get to that point of loving exercise and it's routine for you, it's learning how to balance it so that it still brings you joy, right? Like Exactly. So, uh, yeah. Okay. All right. Number five, it is recommended that adults ages 18 to 64 get seven to nine hours of sleep each night. Do you consistently get that amount? And what's your biggest advice to honor rest and recovery in that way? So even as a dietitian, I truly believe that sleep, as far as the wellness puzzle, is the most important thing, even more important than what you put in your body, believe it or not. I do aim to get seven hours, uh, if not eight, during the week. And then on the weekends, I aim for roughly eight to nine. And I really rarely budge from that. My husband is a little bit different, but yeah, that's what I'm always aiming for. I I think most people would agree with me when I say that when my sleep gets disrupted, my day just isn't the same. And I know I've had the discussion about how, you know, my hormones, especially like through my cycle, definitely affect my sleep. And there's a certain time of the of the month that I have to take melatonin and I will do that just to make sure that I get good sleep. It's just so, so important. There's so many studies out there about the long-term effects of poor sleep habits. I'm very thankful that I, generally speaking, have just really good sleep hygiene. My biggest advice that I would give, especially, I don't know about other phones, but I have an, an iPhone and you can now, I don't know how long this has been around truthfully, but I just probably discovered this about eight months ago where you can actually just schedule, have a sleep schedule set up on your iPhone that would mean you don't have to schedule or actually um, load a time to wake up every single, you don't have to set your alarm every single night, which I, which is what I was doing. And sometimes I would forget and, or do AM and PM. Who hasn't done that before? I do that wrong. So there's an app. It's just within the alarm on your iPhone where you can actually schedule when your phone will turn off every night and then when your alarm will go off every morning, and then you can actually edit it so that it's different on weekdays and then week weekend nights. So weekday nights versus um, 
and weekday mornings versus weekend nights and mornings. So it's super helpful. Ever since I've done that, I've just, I feel like things are just really good. I never forget to set my alarm because it's already set. Um, So that would be my biggest piece of advice. I don't know about other phones, like I said, but uh, with the Apple iPhone, it's just really, really helpful. Um, And also I'm going to say this. I truly believe that there is something too. Obviously there's been research done keeping your, your room at about 65 degrees. Nick says it's like sleeping in an ice box. But <laughs> when we put our, our AC up in our room at, at 65, I'm telling you, I sleep like a baby. And if it's mm-hmm. any warmer than that, it always affects my sleep. And I haven't even hit menopause yet. So, mm-hmm. you know, Nick's got another thing coming. I agree with you on the temperature as well as a fan perhaps and maybe some white noise Uh, for us. We use like um, an air purifier in our room that just makes this nice like hum fan noise. Uh, But I I agree with you. I think temperature, some type of air movement and noise are Mm -hmm. super helpful Uh, for me. I do get between seven and nine hours. It's really more like seven and a half to eight, about six days a week. Hockey nights can get a little late if I've got the late game. Um, and we'll talk about this with another self-care uh, behavior of social interaction. But Gina, I got home at 1235 in the morning last week. <laughs> last Sunday. What? Yeah, I know. That said, I know, bad choice. Um, I knew I was going to be paying for it the next day. But here's the thing. That's not all. That's rare. That's like the latest I've been up in probably a year. Um, But aside from that, what I've learned is if you do get off schedule, for me at least, if I know I have to get up the next morning, sometimes what I would do is come home from hockey or, you know, you come home and you're just like wired a little bit. You're not quite ready for bed, even though it's late. My best advice is to not force the issue. Like I would previously have laid in bed and been like, okay, if I fall asleep 10 minutes ago, I can get six hours. If I fall asleep mm-hmm. now, I can get, you know what I mean? Like play yes. these whole, like I'll stare the clock and like will myself to sleep. And it just puts all the more, it doesn't work, right? It does not work at all. So even when I got home at 1235 in the morning, I took a shower, grabbed my Kindle and I read for probably like 20 minutes. It, it was past one o'clock by the time I went to bed. But I slept well then for those few hours. Um, and I still got like six hours. It wasn't anything like crazy, crazy. That's probably more than a lot of people get on a normal night because I just set my alarm back a little bit. Um, but other than that, I'm very, very, I'm kind of like you. I'm very loyal to my sleep. And I I think for me, at least maintaining a schedule and a routine is huge. So even on weekends I, or vacation, I don't vary a whole lot from that schedule. Like I can't go to Vegas and be like, oh, be up till 4 a.m. Like my body's not capable. I recognize that and I honor it. I don't try and completely overhaul uh, my schedule based on my my whereabouts. But that's just that's just me. I do find that it really helps me maintain quality sleep, though. I think what also helps is just situational stuff. Our kids are not super early risers. Um, and if your kids are, I guess a word of advice would be try and adjust their schedule some if possible. So I know like, for example, some parents will really want to like maintain that afternoon nap, right? Like that's, but sometimes that will lead to kids staying up quite late at night. And then parents are kind of like, oh, we need our time. So then they're staying up later. And then maybe a sibling is up early. It's just kind of this vicious cycle that ends up not working for anyone. So I think if you can try and get your kids on a more similar schedule to yourselves, that's that's helpful too. Yeah. A couple of things I want to add because you just reminded me of some things. Another thing I do is I put my, so we have, we have a clock in our room, although we don't really, truthfully, we only, it's our image. We only use it for the white noise. Okay. But it, obviously it has the time on it and it's bright. I turn that around so I can't see it. Because of exactly what you said, if I can't sleep, all I would do is look at that clock and see what time it is. What time, how much sleep am I going to get? Okay, if I fall asleep in 10 minutes and I wake up at five at 5.30, it's going to be, you know, however many hours, it's not enough. Oh, and then you just obsess over it. So I turn the clock so I can't see it. And then I have my phone actually sort of away. So I have to actually get up to get the phone. Uh-huh. But I don't have access to a clock. We'll just say that. That's one thing. Also, kind of going back to um, the workout being obsessed with working out. There was a while there where I, no matter what time I went to bed, or if I couldn't fall asleep, let's say I had a bad night of sleep and, you know, my hormones were all out of whack or I just didn't sleep because I had too much caffeine, whatever it is. And I fell asleep at 12. I would still wake up at five o'clock to get my workout in. Now, if I have a poor night of sleep, I'm sleeping through that alarm clock and I'm going to get that extra two hours of sleep and skip the workout. 
That is so much more important than getting up and working out. Um, and I'm so glad I finally realized that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. Should I? I just realized I'm going to go back and, and, and kind of talk about real quick the carbonation that I oh, talked yeah, about. Oh, yeah, yeah. You right. looked it up. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, it's we, okay. We've got a I major forgot. topic switch here in a minute. Okay, yes. <laughs> okay, yes, we do. So you are correct. All right. It says, warnings about the harmful effects of carbonated beverages on bone emerge from time to time. The theory is that the phosphoric acid or phosphate used to enhance flavor in some carbonated beverages can interfere with calcium absorption and result in the loss of calcium from bone. Uh, but it also says, fortunately, there's no good evidence that a high phosphate intake actually affects bone metabolism or bone density. So wah, wah. if anyone ever asks, you know, uh, there's no reason, especially the, just LaCroix or just naturally, naturally mm-hmm. flavored carbonated waters versus a, a soda uh, is, is going to be just fine. Yeah. No worries there. All right. Oh, I'm so glad I learned something through my two years of of renal dietetics. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Woo! That's right. Oh, all right. So, all right. Big pivot here: physical touch, intimacy, and sex. It's the most basic need, at least for a lot of people. <laughs> what would you say your needs are in this area, and how do you ensure they're met? Oh, geez. I, you know, here's the thing: I thought that one of my love languages was going to be physical touch. It's not, apparently. That being said, kind of going back to, what's his name, Mario? No, Jose. Jose. What was I thinking Mario? That was random. What, he, what Jose said. Um, I think it is so true that if Nick doesn't touch me in some way during the day or act lovingly towards me during the day and then he wants sex at night, I have no interest whatsoever. But... If he's kind of flirty with me and touching me, you know, touching my butt, whatever it is during the day, I have much higher, greater interest in having sex that night. I, they correlate so, so well because he said, you know, sex starts during the day. And I think that is so, so true. So while I don't think that my need for intimacy and physical touch is that great, it actually does really affect my desire to have sex at night. Um, so yeah, that's really all I have to say about that. I think that my physical needs, my physical touch needs are definitely taken care of. I do have some people in my family who, <clears throat> my mom, who feels the need to hug all the time. She always says to me, Gina, I need a hug. I need a hug. And I think she gets so annoyed because I'm just not a hug person. Uh-huh. I've never really been into giving lots of hugs. And so I always had to remind myself that my mom needs a good hug. And uh, I think that her love language is certainly physical touch. But yeah, mine, not so much. And unless, you know, Nick wants to get down at night. <laughs> so he knows that now. <laughs> Sex starts during the day. So true. Totally. Uh, I have pretty low needs here, I would say. Um, in fact, I'm going to kind of take this a different direction and say that my need or kind of my self-care is perhaps not to be touched or to have physical intimacy or to have physical intimacy or touch without it leading to sex. Um, Mark, very different from me in this way. And generally speaking, he's just a more physical person than me. It is his top love language. Um, I would say I think something that a lot of parents and perhaps moms especially can resonate with too is if you're in those young years with children and you're constantly breastfeeding or cuddling or mm-hmm. you're you're t- kind of touched out and I would I would throw myself into that category a little bit because my kids are very touchy feely. Um, so sometimes at night, like I just want to be alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think a form of self care in that way, especially with a spouse who's different than me, is communicating that a need for me is sometimes being alone at night. And a good portion of the time, I just want to plop into bed and read and ensure that I'm getting my sleep. And that's all part of the self-care too. So it's a balance. I think we all need some form of touch. Um, But I would say a big part of that is, yes, getting your needs met in in all the ways, whether it's more or less or or whatever that means. Mm -hmm. And I love everything you said too. Um, okay, a, a bit different here. Some research shows that adults benefit from at least six hours of social interaction a day. That includes, though, so listen, every, all interaction. So everything from exchange. So that could be like grabbing your coffee in the morning to conflict uh, to cooperation. So like teamwork type stuff, maybe at work. Psychologist Susan Pinker states that direct person-to-person contact 
triggers part of our nervous system that releases a, quote, cocktail of neurotransmitters that are tasked with regulating our response to stress and anxiety. So in other words, when we communicate with people face-to-face, face-to-face here, not Zoom, Zoom perhaps, uh, it could help us make, uh, it could help us make, could help us be more resilient uh, to stress factors in the long run. So fascinating stuff. At the end of the day, however, we we do all crave social interaction that kind of fills our cup. What does that look like for you, Gina? And how do you ensure that it's incorporated incorporated into your life? And at what frequency or duration? Yeah, I know I am missing this so much, specifically in my job, because that's where we are the most part of our day and our week. It is just so isolating. And I've been saying this for so long. I crave social interactions and it's probably because I'm not getting it enough. Um, On days that I have more social interactions, I do agree that I'm just overall happier. I know. And it's funny too, because at the time of my, so there's about two months in my job where I'm working in an operation. It's the beginning of the school year and that's coming up. I tend to actually enjoy that more than my day-to-day job. And I think it's because I'm interacting with people all day long. Mm-hmm. Now it does get a little exhausting after a while, for sure. I'm almost 40 and I'm on my feet for like 12 hours a day for a month. Um, but hey, people do it all the time. So I'm not complaining. But I do truly enjoy doing it because I'm interacting with other coworkers who are, you know, working the line with me and students who are ordering. It's just so fun because you're just talking and all day long. And I and I love that. So otherwise, you know, the other 10 months of my job, I, it's just, I'm kind of cooped up in my office with my little window with beautiful pictures surrounding me. And it is very, very relaxing, but not much social interaction, especially this year when my social interaction was on Zoom, which I don't know. I'm sure that counts for something, but just not the same. Yeah. So I don't know, maybe this means a new job in the future. Who knows? But I just know that my next path, my next season of life, as far as um, my job is concerned and my career is going to have to involve more, more social interaction and just being around more people for sure. What person, okay. In an eight hour day on average, how many hours are spent in a meeting or with someone else versus alone? On average? Mm-hmm. One. Oh yeah. One, you are alone one a lot. to seven. Yes. Yes. And and that's on average. I mean, there are some days when I'm in meetings all day long, but the the vast majority of my days are alone. Um, that's why I'm usually grabbing. And especially this year, because even some like some of my favorite coworkers, Rachel, if you're listening, was working from home the whole year. And she's my lunch buddy. And she's finally back. But we've been really busy the past month. So we really haven't been able to do lunch. And but yeah, she was gone. So I'd go to lunch alone or I'd call my mom. It's nice having my mom. She lives really, really close to where I work. So she would ride her bike over and we'd go to lunch. That was really nice. Oh, yeah. But otherwise, all alone. That's yeah. why I'm, I'm, I've got my, my phone and I'm just listening to podcasts all day. So I feel like my podcasters are my, are my friends. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so sad. <laughs> so in my eight hour day, I would say mm, with people is closer to five to six for me. Oh, wow. And if my door is closed, I'm generally on a meeting like or with a patient. So if if my door is open, it's like free reign for whoever to come into my office, which yeah. is a lot, Is it, which is why I love working from home usually on Fridays because I get, I get all the to-dos done that don't get done during the week. But yeah, I have a very different job from you in that it's very social with both patients and coworkers. Um, and if most adults need six hours, I'm an extreme extrovert. Uh, so I probably need like 12. No, I'm just kidding, but probably more <laughs> than six. Uh, but outside of work, I would say I do. I I would I would encourage adults to um, find activities that are social in some way. That's why I do hockey. A big part of why I do hockey um, and stay till 1230 in the morning socializing. And then once a month, I have book club. What Usually once a week, Mark and I go on a date. Uh, either just the two of us or meeting friends. But again, that's that's interaction. So I personally am not on a shortage here, but I will say, and I was just reading a book last night that had a quote on it, finding friends as an adult is super hard. And that can take some, it's just, yeah. So this quote from this book I was reading, it says, even just trying to make a new friend in your 30s is way more nerve wracking than dating in your 20s. I was like, Trying yeah. To make a new friend in your, in your 30s. 30s. More nerve wracking than dating in your 20s. 
Do you agree? Maybe. I, oh, here's the thing, and this is gonna this is gonna annoy some people, but <laughs> I have never truly dated. Okay. In other words, okay, I'm, I'm I'm thinking about my mom right now. You know, my mom and my dad divorced about six years ago. So she is, you know, in her 60s and she's dating. She's been on probably, I don't know, 20 dates the past year. She is right in the thick of dating. I never experienced that. I either always had a boyfriend or I just didn't care. So I never really got to experience dating. Really, I didn't. Oh, I know. I don't know. So I can't even answer that. And also I don't, I have never, and I've also not really tried to make a whole, a lot of friends in my thirties. I think generally, I think the hardest part about my age now is that there's certain people that I want to be friends with, but their kids aren't the same age. So our, we just don't drive because our, this, the, yep. the kids ages aren't, you have to find friends who have similar aged kids. Do you find that too? Yeah. And sometimes it's funny because the same book that, that I quoted, it talks about too, like sometimes your friend circles are dictated by your kids' friend circles, right? So yes. if Johnny is no longer popular and you're like, yo, I like Johnny's mom a lot. Like, can't we hang yes. out with Johnny? It's like, you feel yes. like you're breaking up with like, you know, it sucks. <laughs> it's true. I agree with that hundred percent. Yeah. Well, that's hard. So you should still hang out with Johnny's mom. You should do like date nights yeah. with your friend, right? <laughs> Definitely. Forget your kids. Just, yeah. But do you Thank think- you for bringing us to Johnny's mom, but- yeah. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> but I guess, I think adults are bad at this, probably because they're so wrapped up in their children, just finding things that fill their cups socially, activities, hobbies, things like that. Do you, Would you say you and Nick have those things? We need to do better at this. And I think, again, going back to, this has been a hard summer for us. We've just been so fixated on our kids. We have not- we need to do better. Both of us. We both have hobbies that we enjoy doing. We just don't do them enough. Yeah. And we just, we've just, we've had so much going on in the past year, which I know is such a terrible excuse. Um, and it's been COVID. We, we know we need to do better in this area for sure. For example, like he loves to golf. And that's a great thing for him to do, be with his friends. He's been, he's done a, quite a bit of it, I would say this year, but he could, I, I wish that he would go out and do that more. Um, I still have a lot of friends who aren't going out. I've, I've, I've tried to get together with a couple of my friends actually recently who still, especially with this new variant, are still afraid to go out mm -hmm. and do stuff. And I totally respect that. But it has been hard, I would say, that area we need to work on for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think you and a lot of people, I, I probably yeah. excel in this way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you do. It's just part of who I am. All right. So social interaction is huge. Uh, however, there are seasons and reasons that seeking professional counseling would be warranted or, or recommended. And Gina, you and I have both had some experience with counseling. What advice would you give to others who may resist seeking outside of their family, seeking help, input, uh, yeah, counsel outside of their friends and family cir circles? Yeah. My biggest advice would be to be patient. It does take time to find someone that you drive with. In fact, I still haven't found a great counselor. I would also say consider looking into your employer EAP program. That stands for Employee Assistance Program. It's a great resource and really a good way to receive free or discounted counseling, even for kids, which I found out this year. Uh, Paige actually six uh, counts, free counseling appointments uh, this year, which is fantastic. Uh, I would say also ask yourself, how much your issues are affecting you on a day-to-day -day basis. If you have, if you just, you know, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to cast anything as not being important, but ask yourself if it's affecting your day-to-day -day routines. Um, the price really, if you don't have an EAP program or you do have to actually pay out of pocket, the price may be worth it if it will help you live a happier and healthier life in the long run. I know, for example, and this isn't counseling for us, but well, I guess it is, but not maybe what we're talking about here, but our parent, our parenting coach slash counselor well, was just not cheap. And I know I've talked about that a little bit, but our lives have truthfully changed so much for the better. We could have taken a nice little vacation with the money that we spent on that parenting coach, but our lives have been forever changed. And even since she left us just about a month ago, Things have gotten progressively better and are, I know, only going to get better. It was so worth 
giving up whatever it is we could have purchased with that money. So just ask yourself how much what you're going through is affecting you day to day. And maybe you can just kind of reevaluate whether the money would be worth it. Um, So yeah, I think it's just good to kind of sit down and ask yourself those questions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for for me, you know, I've seen a few counselors at points through my adult life, uh, most notably after having both of my girls. Uh, With Shay, I wasn't quite able to pinpoint that I was struggling with postpartum. Uh, whereas with Piper, I had a mental breakdown before leaving the hospital because <laughs> it was just like the perfect uh, storm of life events going on. And uh, I just I was very overwhelmed with just the thought of parenting two little people and how am I going to give them both all of my love? It was just a very overwhelming time for me, um, kind of transitioning one to two. It felt more like one to five, um, jumping from one to five. Uh, so, I, you know, that was helpful to me to talk to somebody, particularly at those points um, and finding somebody that was relatable who, and um, who left me with some tactile takeaways for the period mm-hmm. between sessions. To me, that was huge. It allowed me to kind of challenge and grow when I wasn't physically with the counselor and develop those skills. Otherwise, I mean, it's helpful to talk to somebody, but I think the right person for me was somebody that challenged me that in a way that I could um, progress as the weeks kind of between between sessions, if you will. Um, That's that. I think there's a right person out there for everyone. And I know you said be patient. I I guess I'm I would one clarifying question there, Uh, because I found that if I didn't jive with somebody kind of in the first two sessions, I would move on to a new counselor. I kind of knew after first the first two visits, like if we were going to work or not. But I think your point in saying be patient is try somebody new. Don't give up on counseling. Exactly. Thank you. Yes. I'm not saying be patient, sit around and wait for your counselor to jive with you. No. I mean, it's like, it's like when you're going on a date, you'll know in the first two dates, whether or not that person's (laughs) the right fit for you. Same thing with the counselor. Yeah. Yeah. Woo. Self-care, baby. So important. Meet your most basic needs. That was good. Thanks, Gina. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. All right. So coming up on September 5th, we will be dishing about our lives before and after COVID and take a look at the future with respect to COVID. Until then, keep in touch with us on social media at Dietitian's Dish Podcast on both Facebook and Instagram. And check out all of our episodes and show notes on our website, dietitiansdishpodcast.com. Also, please tell your friends about us. They can find us on numerous outlets such as Overcast, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Pocket Cast. If you listen on iTunes, be sure to leave us a review. We promise it only takes a few seconds. All right. Until next time, uh, be well, Nicole and everyone. And Nicole, have fun with your family this weekend. Thanks. Have a good weekend, Gina. Talk to you soon. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening for the podcast. Bye-bye. <laughs>